this might actually be something useful for the Neuromatch listeners out there. Maybe we should briefly talk about the concept of normative models, no? because, because I think all four of us are deeply committed to that way of thinking. Why are we so excited about normative models? Math is so cool because you can take reality and kind of transfer it to this space where you can do operations and get something new and then come back and that will still correspond to reality. I think if you want to be really original, you sh you're going to have to give up some coolness because there are many people who are entering the field kind of swept by this wave of enthusiasm for certain ideas like deep learning. And what that means is that many people are basically doing more or less the same thing. If you're still working on the same thing you, you, you told your hiring committee you would work on 10 years later, then something has gone wrong. And, and probably most people find their questions because their data don't make sense without different questions. This is Brain Inspired. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul. This is the last discussion panel of the first round of Neuromatch Academy, where we are ostensibly uh, talking about stochastic processes, Bayesian inference and models, decision-making, optimal control, reinforcement learning, causality. Those were the topics uh, for the past week in Neuromatch. With me today are Yael Niv from Princeton University, Conrad Kerding, uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, Tim Behrens at University of Oxford, and Sam Gershman from Harvard University. And three of those people, Conrad, Tim, and Sam, you've heard multiple times on the podcast before, but Yael is a new uh, person on the podcast, so it was really nice to have her. So we do talk uh, high level about some of the topics related to this past week, uh, especially normativity uh, and why these models are good models to use to understand brain function. And then we go on to talk about a host of uh, topics related to just doing science and thinking about these sorts of things, uh, where questions come from, and how to get a good question. I make the fun mistake of calling uh, mathematical and computational approaches uh, to the brain sterile, by which I meant no harm, uh, but it sets off <laughs> quite a, a discussion that then winds its way among uh, many other topics. For the record, I call this approach sterile uh, in terms of its purchase on matters of connecting brain function to subjective experience, qua philosophy of mind. And that set off a uh, fun flagellation uh, of me, which was fun. A link to all the guests and to Neuromatch Academy in the show notes, braininspired.co slash podcast slash NMA dash three. Okay, enough of me. Better things await you. And here are those better and fruitful, I hope, things. So what I'd love for you to do is, is just introduce yourself, what you do generally, very high level. And then what I would like you to, to say just as an, as an example, as a personal example, what do you think you're best known for? And what, do you, what are you most proud of uh, in your work? So Conrad, perhaps we should just start with you, the, the Neuromatch central person here. Uh, well, great. For, thanks for having me. I'm Conrad Carding. I'm one of the co-founders of the Neuromatch movement. I deeply believe in accessible teaching and communication in the field. Uh, I'm probably best known for Bayesian models of uh, how we might be thinking. And I think I'm more, most proud about thinking about the epistemology behind neuroscience. Nice. Proud of the thinking. So that hasn't... <laughs> uh, that's, that's right. Exactly. So I'm, I've been struggling for years with how I want to think about brains. And I oscillate between many different views. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm seriously most proud about giving like all these different ways of thinking a brain in a way like what I feel to be a fair sh shake, despite the fact that I'm deeply opinionated, obviously. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I imagine there's that's a uh, a trait of many among the panel here. Yael, who are you, uh, and what do you do, and what are you best known for, and what are you most proud of? Hi, um, I'm Yael Niv. I am at Princeton University. Um, what am I best known for? I think um, I might be best known for reminding people who study reinforcement learning that we should think about how um, states enter into the picture. So how people and animals learn what are the states of a task or what's the structure of a task. Um, what am I most proud of? Uh, actually, you can ask Sam later what what I'm best known for, because he was making some kind of face that made me think I'm saying the wrong thing here. Well, I, I was just going to say that now you, I don't have to say what I'm best known for anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm best known for what Sam discovered when he was in yeah. my lab. No, no, no. Um, I, I'm not trying to steal your thunder, <laughs> yell. I'm just saying that I'm best known for probably the work that I did with you. <laughs> Yes. Well, similarly here, I'm best known for the work that you did when you were in my lab. Um, and actually, that goes well with what I'm most proud of. I was trying to think uh, really quickly because I didn't think of this before. Maybe you asked us to do that, but I didn't. Uh, what am I most proud of? And I think that's the fact that I once got a graduate mentoring award. Early on. That was an early on career. thing. That, that tends to be a common answer is when, oh, no, uh, a, a, a reward that you got as a faculty member mentoring a graduate student. Is that what that is? Yes, I got a graduate mentoring award as faculty. Uh, not that early on, a couple of years ago. Yeah, very good. Tim, let's swing it to you. Who the heck are you, Tim? Uh, what do you do? What are you proud of? And what are you known for? Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm Tim uh, Behrens. I um uh, I guess I'm probably best known, I don't really know, but I, I made some software that is popular uh, for um, figuring out brain connections. And so I guess that's certainly what I'm most cited for. So I, let's assume I'm best known for that too. Um, I'm uh, most proud of, um, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a diversity of stuff that I've dipped my nose in. Or something. I mean, like, I, sort of, I sort of feel like I've uh, tackled a few uh, different problems always. Uh, with a couple of themes, so I tried to like think of new ways of thinking about data. So, trying to see what you can measure that we couldn't measure before, um, and uh, um, and I um, uh, often try to. Well, I think that something isn't solved until you can see it in more than one species and more than one technique and that kind of stuff. So that's that's uh, mostly what I do. Thinking about that diversity, I mean, all of you on this panel have uh, expressed that that diversity in interests and in your works, uh, which kind of goes against um, maybe common, you know, what you're supposed to do is, is dive really deeply into one topic or two topics, right? And uh, that's that's the way you make your bones. But I'm, I mean, everyone's shaking their head. So, so how, there's, how, different, there's different models. I, I, I agree with you that you should go deep, but you don't have to stay with, uh, often when you go really deep, you find that you're related to something else. Uh, I think and in, in an interesting way. And so I, I think that, that being, this ability to think, uh, to see relationships across different things, I think is um, uh, is another powerful way that academics uh, make uh, their mark. There's the guy that entered, the, the, um, the guy that invented MRI, um, who shamefully, well, I mean, he didn't, not, so um, this is actually, uh, this is wrong. He he's got a Nobel Prize for his contribution to nuclear magnetic resonance, and I think it was Hahn, although although I can't remember. But somebody else will uh, remember um, better when I say that he also figured out the dynamics of motion of um, uh, of bacteria and things like that using the same kind of physical principles uh, that he discovered for NMR. I think it was Hahn. But I think the um, yeah. I wanted to say that you're also talking to a group of theoreticians here. Um, and yeah. maybe, maybe this is a little bit more characteristic of theoreticians that, um, it's mm. not only what Tim is saying that you take one method and find connections in different places, but sometimes it, uh, what I find with a few of myself and a few of my colleagues who are theoreticians is we're interested in a problem. We make, you know, some headway in it, clearly not solve it in like the solve term, but, and then kind of lose interest in it. And it's like, okay, so what's the next problem I'm going to solve? Um, I mean, some people, again, there, there are different ways to do this. Some people spend their whole career on some problem, on one problem. And some people after three, five years are like, okay, done with that. Now let's go to the next thing. 
well, I, th- I think what Tim is, ex- is expressing is, is a somewhat different sentiment. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but I, I resonate with what Tim was saying in the sense that what going deep really means it, in some cases is to attain a level of abstraction in your thinking about a problem that renders visible connections that you didn't see before, right? And so deep exactly. doesn't, it's not the same as just drilling down for your, in the same topic forever. Well, Sam, I was going to say, um, uh, you may be best known for not being very deep yourself. So let's, <laughs> but I don't other people would have What's to. What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. I just wanted to give it a little spice. Sam, who are you? Uh, what do you do? What are you best known for and most proud of? I, I'm a professor at, at Harvard, and um, I think we already covered what I'm best known for. I, I guess possibly my, my work with Yale. Um and but you I, should say what that was about. You should say yeah, something I mean, about it's, latent it's, causes. Everybody yeah, knows he's or, best known for it. So everybody already <laughs> <that's> knows. <right. laughs> it's um, also been. It's also been. I mean, no, no discredit to you, but it's also been massively developed in your own life as faculty as well. Yeah. And so uh, it's worth uh, noting that that is a major achievement. That sure. Also well known for. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I, it's the problem. I would say, broadly speaking, of structure learning. How do we discover the structure of the world around us? Um, and that that has many different manifestations in, in reinforcement learning and, and beyond. Um, as far as what I'm most proud of, I, I really have to go with uh, um, the people answer, which is I'm most proud of the, the students and postdocs that have gone through my lab because that's really the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, so um, I just had to look back because there's a lot of topics that were covered throughout the um, the week. There's Bayesian. Uh, topics, decision-making, optimal control, reinforcement learning, and causality. Um, so I, I guess our conversation should be centered around these topics uh, loosely. We can't drill down into, into all of them. Um, but maybe I'm, you know, one way to start, start this off is to ask where you guys think, uh, you know, which of these topics uh, has the most fruit to offer in terms of connecting because these these are, these are very it's computational neuroscience. Computations are sterile mathematical objects. Which of these? Uh, I, I just threw sterile in there for fun. But which which has the most fruit to offer in terms of connecting minds with brains, or what we what we think of as minds? So so I think I zoom out in a way. I think it's this week that has a lot to offer. Which is in the first week we learned a lot about the basics and, and techniques, whereas this week we learn about these concepts that we can relate to the way we think in a way much more than maybe what we did in the first week. So, so I mean, I think both Bayes and RL, for which are two things that are, that are close to all of our hearts on this call, are both tools and models of the brain. And, and uh, thinking of them in both of those ways is... Uh, informative and exciting because it, it means that you can imagine how your brain might be working in the same way that as how you can be analyzing your data, which I think is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that I always uh, love. Whenever whenever you, I, I love the fact that with Bayes, what you have to really specify if you're going to solve a problem is a generative model and the rest of it, you then choose between the sort of Bayesian toolkit that's available. But once, you've, once you understand what the problem is, uh, that is enough to specify the solution. Um, and somehow that what I that's that's what I uh, think is uh, there's something purely elegant about that because really as a theoretician your job is to understand the problem not to solve the solution um, and there's something beautiful about imagining the brain that way really uh, w- w- what it's trying to do is build is, is understand the problem the, the 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 world around it as the problem build a uh, build a forward model of that and then it can learn that inversion somehow so there's something uh, beautiful thinking about that way. Uh, and you can actually express reinforcement learning in those same terms as well if you if you choose to. Also, these these two theories are both normative. Um, so you know, Bayesian inference is a kind of statistically optimal way to integrate information, and reinforcement learning is a optimal way to learn predictions, to learn expectations. Um, so. In that sense, I think what Tim was saying is both of them are, are we can use them as, as data analysis methods, for instance, when we get data and we want to, you know, extract information from it, we can use these methods, uh, especially based in inference as as, um, as tools as, you know, that you could use in, in many areas, but then our brain does that too. 
um, because our brain is so optimal and awesome. Um, just the other day, my son asked me if our brain, if like our neurons compute all kinds of things and can do exponents, how come we don't know how to do exponents when we are babies? And so, yeah, our brain knows how to do Bayesian really optimal, awesome stuff that we don't know how to do yet as <laughs> researchers. Um, yeah. When, what what age do they start asking me? those kind of questions? Uh, my I, son I mean, is, my... he's nine and a half. He's eight <laughs> Wow, so it's, it's only two years. Old. So it's Okay. <laughs> so, so, so maybe we should briefly talk about the concept of normative models, no? Because, because I think all four of us are deeply committed to that way of thinking. Why are we so excited about normative models? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that we should um, shackle ourselves to normative models. Um, I, I tend to think of normative models more as a kind of starting point for thinking about the problem. Like I, th I thought Tim put it well, very well. Um, w one way of approaching the complexity of the brain is to say that there are certain problems that the brain is trying to solve. We can stipulate some assumptions that we impute to the brain. Um, and then once we've basically specified the problem, we can ask what we would try to characterize the, the solution and ask whether that is um, at all similar to what, what we can measure about brain and behavior. Um, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that we have to, that all of our models have to be purely normative. Um, th there, are, there are points in the modeling process where we have to kind of adapt them to the biological constraints, which, which might also be normative, but it's not always obvious uh, what, what they are. Sometimes they're just kind of empirical constraints. Yeah, I mean, like for me, the not the drive towards normative thinking drives from me. Me kind of, I, I feel like I understand those aspects. It's it's the normative models are usually of the flavor where I say something. In the world, there's noise in the way you move your muscles. So in the world, there's noise in the way we perceive things, and it feels like those are things that I can understand because they're not relating to the brain, which I'm very conflicted about what we know. There's something about the world and then ideal behavior, optimal behavior, like derives from the understanding that we have about the world. And as scientists, we're very used to talking and thinking about the world. And so in that sense, for me, at least, the drive towards normative models comes from a sense of humility about what I feel I really understand about the brain. Do you feel like you understand optimality assumptions? I mean, I mean, I'm not saying that you can certainly write down a mathematical equation, right, and say, I understand the equation, right? But you feel like you understand the, the, um, the biology well enough to, to say, all right, these are the optimality uh, equations that the brain is actually solving. Well, I don't think we know what which optimality equations our brain is really solving, but we have an idea about that. You know, like we are talking in most cases about humans trying to do certain things. And if you play tennis or something, I know that you're trying to score points. I don't need to understand the whole properties of your brain to like get at meaningful models. And if you come to my lab and we do an experiment with you, I will pay you based on and the points that you make in that game. So, so in that sense, there exists a lot of, and, and even in areas where it's not so clear, let's say soccer, where you could say, well, there's this thing of how well I guard space. And sorry again, Tim, for the, the, the Euro Cup. Uh, but, uh, but like, uh, but like we, we, we reason about it. And like, like, like our language is full of things about what we are trying to achieve. So, I think so that's, that, that there's a risk there of um, missing out on a lot of things that we're trying to achieve as humans, which are all the social things that we're trying to achieve. Even while you're playing tennis, you're trying to score points, but maybe you want to shame the other person. Maybe not. Maybe you want the audience to like you. Maybe you want, you know, who knows what else. You might not be super aware of that. Um, you might not report it, but it might be driving a lot of your actions. And I think one of the things that we... Um, you know, there's been a lot of advance in cognitive neuroscience, thinking of a person as a single unit that, that you know, a, a brain in isolation, but actually in the real world, we're like, we're such social animals. So we've missed a lot. 
And that's I'm, maybe, you know, where we should go next. And I, I think where Sam is going is, is going with his research is, is really bringing in the social component. I mean, there's, there, there are a lot of people who are thinking about sort of cognitive neuroscience. It's possible they're not thinking about it with the same uh, naturalistic way you're thinking about. But but there's a yeah. It's just worth pointing out that there are there are. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. No, I did. I didn't it, it, yeah, mean yeah. that nobody's research about like us here in this conversation saying you know we know what yeah. people are optimizing. <laughs> that misses a lot. You know, maybe yeah, with yeah, their yeah. motor actions, I want to you know not spill the coffee yeah. from my cup. But that's just such a small part of our world of what we're optimizing. I'm right. Know what people are optimizing. I don't know if I know what people are optimizing. <laughs> so, so when it comes to social things, I, I think it's not true that we don't have good ways of starting to think about it. You know, like people spend a surprising amount of their days talking about social relation. Hey, I would like to convince them that I know what I'm doing. I'm worried they're judging me. Like a lot of human language is exactly about what we are optimizing in social relations. So, so I don't think that that space is fundamentally different. Maybe for the neuromatched people, uh, sorry, sorry to move us away off social neuroscience, but I think probably that's not our collective area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe... Um, it is worth just specifying this difference between a normative model and, and a um, and uh, and and what the alternatives are. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose, uh, in some sense, there are models that we know do something uh, as a model of the brain, uh, and then what we ask, well, here's the model that does something. Does it look like what the brain does it? And let's class all of those as normative. I know that that's gonna there's gonna be debate about that, but let's put convnets and all that kind of stuff in that class of models. Kind it, it of the what model? The the yeah, answer to the I, question of what does the brain do, not for instance, how does it do it? Well, even with a convnet or with something like this Tolman Eichmann machine that I've built, you, you can say, okay, let's look at let's look at the the uh, uh, it's solving a problem. I understand what problem it's solving. And I can look inside the representations, and they look similar to what the brain does. There's some, so there's there's that kind of model, or there's a model of, or you can do that, take that kind of thing without anything about the brain at all, and just look at the behavior, as Yao says, or what model. But then there are like other types of models that are models directly of the data, or there are models, or there are, or there are models of the brain that that just try to to predict the how the how the neurons interact with each other without knowing with the process process yeah exactly the process without considering what the problem is the neurons are trying to solve i guess those are the sort of three classes of models and it and they could consider they they can consider what problem is being solved but they're more focused on how is that problem solved rather than what is the problem that is being solved yeah okay yeah Yes. I mean, you know, if you have a circuit model of how a neuron can compute a prediction error, the problem is compute a prediction error, and you can say, here is how the circuit can do it. But it's not asking, why should you compute a prediction error to start with? That's what I thought, as I, I just would need to press go with you guys, and I didn't expect to, to talk again. So, but... but, uh, uh, but I wanted I wanted yeah. to say one, one more thing. Um Gosh, now I can't remember exactly what it was linked to before. But Paul, you said that that math is these. Um, how did you describe it? Sterile. Sterile. Um, you said that like we're computational people, and then math is sterile computational stuff. I didn't call it's you sterile. I said the computational no, 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 no. approach just, is kind I of sterile. Yeah. Wanted to say that um, there's this awesome book called Dialogues on Mathematics uh, by Alfred Rennie that has like three short dialogues. I'm like, why is math relevant? Like, why do we care about math uh, in the form of dialogues between like Achilles and the tortoise or something like that? Uh, um, and the main point there is that math is so cool because you can take reality and kind of transfer it to this space where you can do operations and, and get something new and then come back and that will still correspond to reality. So like we can't, it's hard to do operations on things in the world, but it's easy to do operations on things in math and maintain kind of truthness when you translate back. And I think in that sense, these normative models or the, the classes of models that we're talking about 
there's this abstraction that you can work with to understand things about the brain, even if every part of the process is not how the brain does that process. So the brain has to do a lot of, you know, um, satisficing and taking, you know, really hard computational problems. You can't, you just like, you know, a lot of things we can't even solve optimally, um, even with like supercomputers with uh, Bayesian inference because they're just too big and the brain just does this all the time. So it must have some shortcuts to do this. But we can, you know, we can move in the mathematical space. We don't know how to move in the brain space. And then we get to something and we're like, okay, so the brain should in the end have as a product of the computations, this and that. And you go back to the brain and you're like, oh, lo and behold, or at least you go back to behavior and you see, lo and behold, there are signatures of this mathematical quantity there, even if you don't know how the brain computed it. Well, when I was talking about the sterility of the computational approaches, um, what I was trying to link it to was mind, because there is brain, and there's the you know the implementation of how it happens in the brain. But I, but at that abstract level in mathematics, does that help us connect to what we think of as mind, subjective experience that we many of us? Whoa, wait, into Paul, this let racket. me stop you right there. In, in what sense is mind subjective experience? Well, so, I mean, so it depends on how you define mind. Is part of mind, right? It, it all depends on how you define mind, but people commonly think what I mean is subjective experience. That's what I mean, because that's the, the connection that is um, that, that. Well, that's the question. Is there a connection? Does do the computational models help you? Uh, and I know that subjective experience is not the goal of the computational neuroscience program at Neuromatch. So we don't need to go down that road. But that was more the upper level question. I think of mind as just the functioning of the brain. So, but, but I, I think Paul, it, it's I feel like it's very illuminating what you just said because I actually think a lot of neuroscientists think in this way, which is that there's all the mechanistic stuff that happens with the neurons, and then there's mind, and mind is all the subjective stuff that we experience, you know, our phenomenal experience. Um, and I think that that view, uh, I mean, I'm caricaturing it, but but I think that that view stems from um, a sort of lack of knowledge or in some cases disinterest in psychology and cognitive science because there's lots to think about the mind even not talking about neurons um that's not about subjective experience and it's kind of and, and it's sort of like there's this whole missing chunk well, of and, knowledge that, and that, that, also, that yeah and also ahead, if, if the so uh, like, i'm just going to plus one on yeah. on i'm not sure how you do a plus one on a podcast but i'm gonna <laughs> on what sam was saying and yeah. just add that people that if if neuroscientists are going to give up on the brain side of subjective experience to think is what episodic memory people look at or i mean there's a whole load of people in neuroscience that that investigate that from a non-computational perspective then if we can't think of that computationally then we failed right subjective experience is part of the brain and so uh, both so i think that on like looking at it both ways wrong, Sam and I probably disagree with you about uh, the statement that you just made there. Right? Is, that, is that fair, Sam? Or, or? Yeah, I mean, I, I was making a different point, which is just setting aside um, the, val the validity of subjective experience as a topic of study. I'm just saying that th the view that mind is subjective experience, I, I feel like uh, permeates the thinking of, of many neurobiologists um, and prevents them from really engaging with the, the, the cognitive aspects of brain function. But Paul, I want to bring back the big point to you. You said sort of like, you guys are into computation, isn't that super sterile? And isn't that far away from the subjective experience? The whole premise of that is that for some reason, just because we use mathematical tools, we are farther away than say an experiment. And I just don't want to accept that as an assertion. So basically, just because our favorite tools uh, is an uh, equation, that doesn't in any way make it more sterile or further away from reality. Like if it's an experiment. Equation is not the way we study the brain. The equation is, a is often stated a hypothesis that we then go and test experimentally right. or in other ways. It's just, it's a tool to ask questions really precisely. So, let, but let me just, let me just back up, Paul, for a second and challenge 
Why is this all on me? I'm just asking questions. To, I'm not, I'm yeah. not, I don't have a position that I'm coming from that <laughs> math is sterile and experiments but, aren't or something. But I'll take that. I'll like be that person. I'll be the, the, the punching bag here. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a professional podcast host, so everywhere it counts. A provocateur. Yeah. But let's, let's say we're studying the kind of thing Yale studies or Sam studies where, where – we have what we really want to understand is the graph of the experience of the task or something like that. If we, if we didn't need equations to be part of this, then we would design our experiments very differently. It is unfortunately true that we sure. do have to design our experiments uh, to be tractable to the equations that we want to investigate. And, so, and sometimes they do end up seeming a bit dry and drier than 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 they than they would do if we didn't if we weren't making these precise computational statements. What is dry? Oh, sorry. No, no. After you. Oh no! I was wondering. I, sterile and dry. These are um, terms. Mechanical. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Insults. Not if you're. Not if that. Right. <laughs> Um, well, but it it just it stri it strikes me that I mean it really depends on your cast of mind. I mean, some people find the mathematics enthralling. Um, yeah, and that's and, right, right, and 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 so I don't I'm this is, I'm not going to make a value judgment about it. You know, some people like it and some people don't. That's fine. No, that that wasn't the point. I mean, so I I think the math is fantastic, even even in. But I think that the fact that we're trying to get to that level of prescription means that we have to do experiments that are not naturalistic often. The, mm -hmm. the, 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 yeah, exactly. But, but we can take the two of them totally apart. And like, we can do naturalistic experiments with stuff, stuff that is really like real life using math, because that's the precise way of asking questions. And we can use absolutely boring, trivialistic lab tasks without touching a line of code or math. So, yeah. so, so I just, I just think this like perception, not like, sure, computation is hard. And that's why people go to Neuromatch and learn about it. But that, that, that like the magic isn't, and isn't diminished the slightest bit by that. And well, I think I, that that's important. I think you're mischaracterizing what, at least to me, from my vantage point, uh, the computational aspect is the magic is that is the, the top level what you should, what everyone should be doing, how everyone should be thinking about about brains, uh, and I, I don't see any evidence to counter that. I, I would say it's not magical, Paul, because magic implies <laughs> that there's something you don't understand. This is we're going to quibble over words. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I understand. Is, but why don't you is, lead us no, back no, to this? This is actually issues. really important. Yeah. I think this is really important. I think this is one of the things that. The goal of a course like Neuromatch is is to make it not look magical because magical seems like something that I can't do myself. And Conrad said the math is hard. Lots of things are hard. Doing experiments is hard. Doing like a lot of it is hard, but it's all learnable. And I mean, but different people find it easier to learn different things. But I think, I, I mean, speaking about Bayesian inference. Um, you asked in, in kind of the email that you sent us, one of the things was, what, what did we struggle most in our career? And one of the things I was, I was kind of laughingly telling myself, it's Bayesian inference with Bayes rule. Like I knew Bayes rule and I sat for like, I don't know, two years in my in the lab where I was as a graduate student and people would talk about Bayesian inference every day, pretty much, or every other day. And <laughs> yeah. I would be like, how do they always remember which part is the prior and which part is the posterior? And like those, those didn't make sense to like, I understood, I, I, I could derive the equation. It's a very simple equation, but it didn't, I didn't have the intuition for it. And then at some point it clicked and now like, I totally, like I see it and I understand it. And so it used to look like magic to me, like magic in the bad way of like, I don't know what's the input and what's the output. How do they compute these probability distributions? Wh what goes in and like, and, and for me, one of the things that makes it easy and lose the magic and become like, I can use this as a tool and I can understand this. It's to just write down the code. And literally it's like, oh, I have everything I need. Like the prior is just like, the result of the previous iteration and then i multiply it by something that i know and then i divide you know like I, I once you put it all in code for me then i'm like okay 
Now it's not magic. And it's good that it's not magic. I don't want it to be magic. I want it to be usable. And I think that's that's one of the things that hopefully students got out of the out of the lectures and the exercises in Neuromatch. I'm that's, sure, yeah, that's, I'm sure they've done this, but I, I used to um I should do this again actually. I'm sure the Neuromatch kids have done this, but I I whenever someone came to my lab, I used to tell them to spend the first week just estimating the mean and uh the mean the, the mean of some data and the standard error on that mean uh, using all the different flavors of Bayes. And it takes, um, like, like from, um, uh, from, um, uh, like direct from sampling techniques to direct integration techniques to analytic, you can do, you can do that particular exercise in about 10 different ways. Once you've done that, you understand a lot about Bayes. It takes, I mean, I mean, obviously doing that properly will take more than a week, but, um, but, uh, just, just once you know how to estimate, that's the total joy of Bayes, right? Once you estimate, once you know how to estimate the meanness from data with Bayes, you can do everything with Bayes because it's just about specifying a different generative model. Tim, if you have that like exercise or assignment in writing, I totally want it. <laughs> I can, yeah. I can definitely. I mean, it's really, it's really not hard to make. I can really make it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, I love cool. that. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to say, Yael, next week, you're, that's when your child is going to come to you and say. I know that my brain can uh, update to do to do Bayesian inference, but why can't I understand it? And then you'll give maybe you'll give the the child the exercise those exercises. But yeah, no, my my kid is super magical. That is magical. Well, case okay, so let's get off of magical because that was just an error, I guess, on my part saying using the word magical because the real magic is not real. But let, let's go to coolness, okay? Because let, let's call it cool. But uh, I have I have a friend who runs a lab, and he and I were talking about how when we went into graduate school, we didn't have any coding experience. Uh, and and now he says all of the, the kids coming in, they're all like machine learning experts. And that's because deep learning is cool. Uh, and I, and so the, the compu- that's what I was talking about is the computational approach is the cool kid, is, is, the, way, is the cool way to do the popular kid in, uh, in neuroscience these days. And that's so different. I mean, when some of us here who are older than others here uh, we're growing up as, as right. early career scientists. Um, I jokingly say, like, if you, if you said I'm a computational neuroscientist, people would go talk to someone else in the party, right? It was like, this was not the cool kid. Nobody wanted to hire computational neuroscientists. Nobody was really sure what computational neuroscientists were. Very few universities yeah. had a computational neuroscience program. There were some summer courses, because that was like, let's get people into the field. So computational neuroscience always had like its fair share of summer courses, but that because there was nothing else, you couldn't study it anywhere else in some sense. Um, And it's amazing to me to see also like reinforcement learning. Nobody used to talk, even even in a computational summer, computational neuroscience summer course. I remember I was a student in 2001 and the European computational neuroscience summer course, it's now the Cajal course in, Portugal. Uh, it was then in, in Italy that year. And in the whole course, we did not have anything about reinforcement learning. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Like a four-week course. And in the last week, they asked us for feedback. And I said, uh, you know, you kind of missed the whole like area. And now it's such a hot topic. Um, it used to be that you would find like at SFN, maybe like 10 posters of interest. And now they're like, there's a whole session every day that's like mostly reinforcement learning stuff. So it's, there's been a huge change in the field and it's really amazing to witness. Kind of scary as well. It was kind of nice when it was just a few of us. Uh, <laughs> can I actually say about coolness? I, I mean, I, obviously I'm very gratified that um, people think, comp- or at least some people think that computational neuroscience is cool. Um at the same time, I also think that um, when it comes to some specific choice of research idea, um, I, I think it, if you want to be really original, you sh- you're going to have to give up some coolness, right? Th- there's a tension fundamentally between being cool and being original, because there, there are many people who are entering the field kind of swept by this wave of enthusiasm for certain ideas like deep learning and what that means is that many people are basically doing more or less the same thing. And, um, and I understand that for particularly for young people who, who enter in and are trying to find some promising topic of, of research, that's, it's natural to gravitate towards the cool things. Um, but in some ways, I hope that we can train people to, to, to resist that to some extent and think about original ideas. 
when I started, um, when I started my career, everybody was doing vision. Everybody in computational neuroscience was doing computational vision. Yeah. And I was that's like, still, that's still I the case though. But I remember saying to myself, I don't know what I want to do. I know what I don't want to do. And that is that. And it, it was almost just because everybody was doing it and that just pushed me away and look where I ended up and what everybody's doing now. Um, but the other things I wanted to say, Paul, to what you said that, that like now it's cool and everybody comes in knowing how to program and having programming background. I just wanted to say for those listening that not everybody um, actually right. um a lot of women, it, t- it turns out, don't have programming background. Also, some men, but um, that's totally fine. It's so learnable. And it's not like you don't have a place in this field if you don't come with this background from home. Um, it, there's this perception that everybody has it, but it's really not true. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in my lab don't have programming background, came without programming background. You know, Sam came from psychology and kind of a lot of self-learning as, as a programmer. Um, I have other students coming from math. From I almost have nobody. I actually, in my lab, I think have zero people who came from computer science. Um, so programming background is not the like, the requirement to do this kind of work. Well, Sam, that's because psychology is such a uh, soft, magical. Um, <laughs> uh, what the other? <laughs> but Conrad, but, I, I didn't go. What were we going to say? Yeah, yeah, I wanted to zoom out a little bit. So, uh, so there's a computer scientist, Dijkstra, who is one of the big heroes in my life, and he formulated three rules of what you should do to do good science. And it's highly debated and there's a lot of people who disagree with, but the last two things we just said perfectly mapped on two of his. The the last one we discussed is like, yes, coding, we need to often learn to be able to do the research that we want to do. And, uh, and, uh, and one of his rules is you should always do the hardest and mo- most complicated research that you can possibly do, to, because that's the only way to grow as a scientist. And the other one is when given a little bit of time, someone else will solve a problem, you should move away and do something else, which is what Yael told us uh, to do. And, like, and, and like in a way, being in a in an area where lots of people are doing the same research, you shouldn't be there. It's a waste of mankind's resources. And it also make, pushes you into that space where you have to compete on the number of hours you spend per week instead of the clarity of the ideas that you can bring to it. Because these overcrowded fields, there's always other people doing roughly the right thing. And it's just bad because people compete on the wrong things. Paul was saying that this is that people go to what's cool. And I want to push back a little bit, Conrad, on the like this strategic idea of you choose an area to like maximize what humankind will discover. I think we choose areas based on what we are super excited about. And it's true that if there's an area that a lot of people are working in and giving great, exciting talks on, then students get excited about it. And I wouldn't say don't do something you're excited about because the competition will be tough. It's not just about the competition, but it is, you see, neuroscience is so big. When I started in the field, I had no idea how big that is. So it's really weird that there's these bubbles where all of a sudden you have dozens of labs doing very similar research. And I understand it feels comfortable with a lot of people sharing a certain set of ideas but I've been part of these bubbles and it feels at the end of the bubbles well maybe we went like a little overboard into that direction so I do think that that having diversity of ideas is really incredibly valuable and that's why if you find an area where lots of people congregate and that's just my own opinion and Dijkstra's uh, that, that in a way we want to see if we can bring in new ideas and do something that is somewhat different and like Yal, you told ourselves, uh, you told us that you were like, okay, I don't want to do vision because everyone else is. And you were incredibly off the charts successful at charting new ways of doing things. And I think that possibility exists in a lot of areas of neuroscience. But it's not that I didn't want to do vision, even though I was excited about it. I just wasn't excited about it. Something about it did not excite me, maybe because it seemed to like, I don't know, I don't know why it was just like the one thing I wasn't excited about. I was excited about pretty much everything else. Um, and I was most excited about reinforcement learning. And I ended up doing that. I, I, I'm just saying that, I mean, it's, I, th- I think 
people often try to think, well, I don't know if often, but people sometimes ask me whether I chose an area of research strategically or something like that. And I, I feel that it's really hard to predict the future. And if you're in an area that's crowded that, and that's what you're most excited about, then you can remind yourself that we are not at all close to understanding the brain. So there is room even in that area. And if you're excited about something else that not everybody's excited about, good for you as well. You will, as, as Conrad, as you were saying, you will help push mankind forward by doing something that not everybody is doing. But but really, it's very subjective what, what we get very excited about. And, and I, I, I would encourage people to not try to overcome their excitement with strategicness. Well, it's I, I actually, it's funny because I, I was thinking in some ways of the inverse of what you're saying in the sense that, yes, there's a subjective element uh, first of all, I should I agree with you. People should do what they're excited about. Um, in addition to the subjective element, I think there's a lot of path dependence about what people are excited about. And I'm excited about things today that, if you had asked me ten years ago if I if I was excited about those things, I would say definitely not. Why would anyone study those things? Um, Is that single cell learning. <laughs> yeah, and I mean other things like I I did work on motion perception. I didn't think that motion perception was particularly interesting, but, you know, it turned out that there are things that were interesting about it for me. Um, but that, that had a lot, again, it was very path dependent because I came to it from a particular angle that, that was driven by other things that I did with that were not about, let's say motion perception. Um, uh, and, and then the other thing is the other way in which I was thinking about this in a kind of inverted uh, direction from, from is, that um, there's a, I think there's often a strategic aspect to why people, why, these sort of bandwagon effects where people pile into one particular research area. And because I, I think people see what, what produces successful careers and they have some anxiety, like, should I be doing this obscure thing that nobody cares about or this, this thing that not just I'm excited about, but many other people are excited about it will advance my career. And so it takes some degree of courage to sort of, and, and uh, acceptance of risk to take the leap into an area that maybe you're excited about, but you're worried that it's not a good career move. On the path dependent thing, I just wanted to say that my interest in reinforcement learning came from a paper that I presented in a seminar. Um, <laughs> that seminar started my whole career, uh, an undergraduate seminar. And I don't know if this is true, Sam, or not, but I feel like when you joined my lab, we had this these like mini rotations of like two weeks in each lab in a few labs in, in um, what was then the, we didn't have the neuroscience institute, the psychology department. And I gave you a paper to read about like, you know, young rats doing extinction differently from old rats. And I kind of feel like that started your model and your whole like PhD thesis um, from there. So I don't know, maybe you had those ideas already to start with, but I felt like after that, I kind of thought, wow, I should think really carefully what papers I give people because, you know, one paper goes a long way here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I realized that too. Like I, I, I would sometimes throw off a random idea and and the so, some students would like work really hard to sort of figure out what my cryptic half-baked idea was about. Uh, when I, my intention was not to like set people off on this odyssey. Um, but, and, and so it, it gave me pause to think about you know, the effects of casual, uh, suggestions. Well, I'm very happy I gave you that paper. Uh, yeah. the path dependence there worked really well. <laughs> me too. Can we, can we talk about questions for a second? Because you hear over and over, uh, when someone asks like, what model should I use? The answer is always, it depends on what your question is. And a, but a lot of people early on in their careers think, oh, God, I need a question. They don't have a question, right? But they, they have a vague interest uh, because uh, deep learning is cool or whatever, you know, in, in, in the brain and computational neuroscience. And then so I don't know if you can say this from your own experience, thinking about path dependency and the nature of how your questions have changed over the course. Uh, but and, and the gist of the was there did you come in with the right question? Did, did the right question develop? through uh, some one of your advisors giving you a paper about rats or, you know, how did that work? I think, I think everybody has to find, I, I, particularly with a new PI. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a little thing about this actually. They, they, um, but I think um, like, it's the biggest, like if you're still working on the same thing, you 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 told your hiring committee you would work on 10 years later, then something has gone wrong. And, and probably, um, uh, most people find their questions because their data don't make sense without different questions. 
I think. Uh, there are some people like Sam who are so broadly read that they can find new questions from out of the out of left field. But I don't think that I am saying not like that. I um, I I look at data and it doesn't make sense. And I feel I mean I was led to, for example, from frontal cortex into hippocampus because it was anywhere could make sense of frontal cortex data. Um, uh, and um, but do you, do you remember like the initial part of your career when when that sort of stuff when before your questions were well formed? Do you remember feeling oh now I have a question and um, I, it getting took me, on that it took me ages. It took me ages to start working on something that was actually. So I I was working on on various sort of things that were just like little individual projects that were just related to what I was doing in the postdoc in my postdoc and just worse than in most in many cases, but often related for the first i don't know for the first five or six years of, of running a lab they were fine they were just isolated there was no deep understanding to, to them in some ways maybe i did them for safety because i knew they would work um uh, and they'd seen they were related to what i'd done before but during that time i formed a lot of deeper i think questions about how going uh, going about um uh, how to go about these things and um uh, and I think that really that comes from like serially seeing data and it and it only making sense together and um, uh, with with some deeper question. Uh, I, I think that there's no. I think if you don't questions don't magic themselves up unless you well unless you read an awful lot. That's the other way that maybe you can get questions. Yeah, I was going to say that 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 reading is another source. Sometimes it's your own data. Sometimes it's um, kind of an observation of a phenomenon in the world or, you know, since we're studying brains in our own, like, subjective experience that, that brings a question. But a lot of it, I, I remember at some point saying to a colleague that I don't have any new ideas. And then, like, in a different conversation, I said that since my kids were born, I haven't had time to read papers. And she was like, well, no wonder you have no new ideas. Where do our ideas yeah. and questions come from? It's from a lot from reading other papers I, I, or I going a, to talks. I have a friend who would directly contradict you, who swears that reading is the devil, and and you have you generate your own ideas, and then those generate new ideas. He does not read; he has a, he runs a lab. <clears throat> so, just wanted to as a counterpoint. But does he go from to an talk? arrogant perspective? It can work for some. It worked for Jeff Hinton, but it doesn't work for everyone. The yeah. depends what you mean by work. I mean, if, if working it also involves forgetting everything that other people do. The, yeah, but, but, but I, I think there's this diversity of where questions come from. Now, like questions come from, often questions for me come between fields. There's this field that says this, this field that says what, that. How does it even fit together? Sometimes they come from reading. Sometimes they come just re opposite direction. You look at data, you're like, what's the question that would go with the data that I happen to have? And that's also a perfectly fine way of getting, no, like, not in the overfitting sense, but like we can measure A and we can measure B. What's the set of questions that you can answer if you can only measure A and B? And it's a different set than what you start with. And I don't think this like notion of like the question is fast and as trying to answer it is later uh, maps on all projects in your sense. I think it's really important to have a question. I mean, yes, it can come from different places, but um, I don't know. I mean, this might be subjective in, in how different people do science, but I feel like if, you, if you're if you doing a project and you don't know what you're asking, then you're unlikely to find a, an interesting answer. I, I totally agree with that. And actually something that I've started doing, I, I realized it, reviewing lots of um, PhD applications, this might actually be something useful for the, Neuromatch listeners out there, I I, um, I realized that the vast majority of applications, the, the, when they write their, their research interests, they say, I'm interested in memory or decision-making or whatever. Um, and th the problem there, I think, is that when you sit down on day one of grad school, you can't just sit down at your computer and start working on memory, right? It's just, it's not a, a question that can be answered, right? Um, and so I, I started... Incur for all the undergrads that work in my lab over the summer and are thinking about applying for uh, grad school, I, when I talk to them, I ask them, what is their question? And usually they don't really have one. And, and so I tell them to think about it and then talk, talk to me again later. And then we basically um, talk about it until they have, a they have a question. You know, it's not necessarily the question that they're going to work on for the rest of their lives, but it's, 
a question that, that we both agree is good and interesting for them. Um, and I think that's actually a really useful um, a, approach to writing, uh, to preparing PhD applications, and also to know who, who you want to work with, who, who's answering the question that you want to answer, or who are trying to. It's amazing, my, though, my that you're doing that with undergrads, because I want to say that I asked postdoc applicants, what question do you want to study? And many postdoc applicants don't have an answer to that. It's really hard. Yeah. Uh, people OPR will know, you know, what <laughs> method they want to use or what kind of thing they're interested in, but yeah. often they don't have a question. Again, I think it's really important to, to you know, find a question to do research, but I, I again want to, you know, say to the listeners that if you don't have a question, that doesn't mean you're the outlier. Actually, but, most yeah, people we, don't we, have we a question. Tell everyone about, we should tell everyone about Dick, how Dickinson found his question for, for the de, for the devaluation experiment. I guess. We how did he? What is, yeah. I don't know the story. Yeah, yeah. The watermelon yeah, story. Yeah, You've not that. heard the watermelon story. No, I'm joking. Yeah. We shouldn't tell that story. We only have like a few minutes left, <laughs> but it was like an anecdotal personal experience. So, that so, had to do I, with drinking and get with drinking too much and having a hangover. But I, I want I want to emphasize here that there's a process that we can have that helps that makes at least in my experience the finding of questions easier. So I force everyone before they do real research to write an abstract which contains a question and the answer that they're expecting for it. And this forcing yourself into like just put the story that this will be into hundred words that really forces people into coming up with a question. And I found you, that- Are you guys very, not forced into that? So, so we have- That's we a have, very that's cool idea. But, so, but we have to do this institutionally. Whenever we start a new project, we have to, uh, the, grad, uh, the graduate student has to um, give a presentation to the whole department before, the, before he gets any data or does anything on it. Um, well, what and, does a new uh, project even mean? That's what I was going to ask. Conrad, but I guess you as well, Tim, because Conrad, you said before anybody does real research, what's real research versus fake research? I I want people to write an abstract before they do one line of coding. Oh, any coding. Interesting. I ask people to do more than that. I mean, I ask people to write down their whole model before they do a piece of code. Coding is the new real research? I don't ask anybody to do any of that stuff. I'm yeah, doing something wrong. No, no, no. I mean, they're different styles. It's not one size fits all. It's for certain kinds of projects that, I mean, this is a, this is neither here nor there, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we have to present before we get data. So for, for, for the data part of it, we... For, um, for any experiment or just for fMRI experiments? Like, you know, if you're going uh, to collect some data so, on Mechanical Turk, you have to present to other people about it? Uh, it's a, so you're totally right, Yael. It's for it's for experiments on the um, it's, it's mostly for experiments on the MRI machines, but you're but we actually also do it for some of our rodent experiments as well. Um, we don't well, those, do it for yeah, behavior. that's different. That's different. Yeah. Like most of what we do, like we get to an fMRI experiment like once in a PhD late on in the game. Most yeah. of the work, and some people don't even ever, I mean don't do fMRI their whole thesis like. Sam, for instance, his thesis mm-hmm. in my um, right. You, d- you didn't do fMRI, or did you? I did. You, you did okay. with Ken, but not with me. <laughs> yeah. With Ken, but not with me, right? I did, but th- those experiments didn't work out very well. <laughs> yeah, you wiped it from your memory. <laughs> you did fMRI experiments with me, guys. I have I'll to tell you about it later. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's time it's time to depart but uh, let's do like a little a very quick uh experiment a wet and dirty experiment uh let's test your predictive brains i want to thank you all for being here this this has been blank what am i going to say inspiring sterile sterile magical magical sam got it it was magical so uh so i don't know that was kind of a low that was kind of a low uh low accuracy experiment but uh, any guys, any parting words before before we we uh we we hardly talked about anything except fun stuff. So uh, any any parting words specific to anything any any of the topics anyone was learning this week or or otherwise. I'm going back to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and have 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 fun would be my parting word, both for Tim and for everyone listening in here. Find your question. It was the uh, one of the themes there. Well, thanks very much, guys.
Thank you. Catch you guys. Thanks. Bye. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair